So what book are we on tonight? Matthew. Matthew. Okay. Any other ideas out there? First Timothy. First Timothy. Okay. Alright, so you got two options. If you want to just go straight to First Timothy, if you're like one of those people you're like, I don't want to turn a lot of my Bible, I just want to go first Timothy and just just sit there, feel free to go to First Timothy. If you're one of those people that like to just do a little safari through Scripture, I'm going to start in Acts 14. So the story is going to start, the whole story of First Timothy starts in Acts chapter 14. Now, we'll end up in First Timothy, and I assure you, we're going to go, you're never going to turn back to left. You're just going to keep turning right, at, or just keep scrolling, however you like to do it, um, however you have the Word of God. But Acts 14 is where the, st- the story of Timothy begins. So as we come into Acts um, 14, Paul and our Paul is on a missionary journey. And does anybody know which missionary journey this is? Okay, it's his first, his first missionary journey. You may say, you may say, well, well, Spence, how do you know that? Well, if you have a Bible, if you see if it has a heading on top of chapter 14, usually in the dark black, it'll usually have a heading there of Acts 14. Does anybody have a heading? They call that a pericope. Does anybody have one? What does it say? Growth, persecution, and acting. Okay. Does anybody else have another heading? Paul and Barnabas and Iconium. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas. Now, why do you know that means it's the first missionary journey? Because that's who he took with him. Now, who did he take on the second missionary journey? He took Silas. You know, I, I really am not. I'm really not doing you a service as uh, as working through this. So, if you remember, if you remember how the story goes, so Paul and Barnabas they set off on the first missionary journey. Barnabas's nephew John Mark said, "I want to go with you. I want to go with you." So they take off. They get about halfway through the first missionary journey. John Mark gets homesick and takes off for the house. Remember this, all right? So they come back after the first. I don't know why I'm doing this. They come back after the first missionary journey, and they come back to. Jerusalem, they go back up to Antioch, and now Paul looks at Barnabas and says, hey, let's uh, let's go check and see how the churches are doing. And Barnabas is like, great, let's take John Mark. And he's like, negative, Ghost Rider. He abandoned us the first time, we're not taking him the second time. And if you remember, there arose a schism between Paul and Barnabas, and they got really, they got a sideways. So, so what happened was, is Paul grabbed Silas, and he took off on the missionary journey, and the book of Acts tells us that Barnabas and John Mark went into different direction. So depending on it's a little insight, if you don't want to go back and kind of work through it chronologically in the book of Acts, you can just sometimes look at the headings and so if it says Paul and Barnabas you're like ding ding ding, that is the first missionary journey. If it talks about Paul and Silas, it would be the second or possibly even the third missionary journey. So First missionary journey, Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are together, and Iconium is, is the word that's there, but it may say Paul and Barnabas at Iconium. Scroll down there to chapter 14 and verse 8, and they've left Iconium, and they're now entering the next town known as Lystra or Lystra, depending on who's talking. Somebody says, well, it's pronounced Lystra. He doesn't know. He's just guessing. He's just saying it the way that he was taught it be said. Sometimes if you just say it confident enough that I don't know and I know you don't know, then nobody really knows. So you can say Lystra, you can say Lystra, you can say something else. But they are down there in uh, Lystra. Paul heals a man that was lame. People get really excited because they saw the work that Paul was doing. Verse 19... But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. I know I always run short on time. I mean, just think about this. Stoning. They don't just cut your head off. They don't shoot you. They don't hang you. You stand in the middle of a circle, and everybody pelts you with rocks. And they pelt you with rocks of various sizes until you die from the blunt force trauma of the rocks. Talk about a miserable way to die. I mean, I don't know, I I, I couldn't be in the Navy because the idea of drowning just is not my thing. 
But then you also got burning alive. That's, that's also up there with, I mean, you can just think about some very horrific ways to die. But then also right up there would be stoning. I mean, the idea, boom, ah, ouch, that hurts. And then it's just rock, 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 rock. And you think, well, maybe they took these big old giant boulders. Maybe they did. I don't know, but can you imagine dying that way? What a miserable way to die. So Paul is there. All he had done was heal a guy, tell people about Jesus. But because people were opposed to his way of teaching, they got the crowd stirred up. They stoned him to the point they thought he was dead. They drug him out of town, assuming he was dead. So obviously he was pummeled, beat up, bruised enough that they thought this guy's dead. And apparently Paul is playing the part. Verse 20. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and what does your Bible say? Went back into the city. You ever think, dummy, what are you doing? The last time you walked in there, they stoned you. They drug you out of town. What do you think they're going to do next time? Well, this is what happens. He rose up, entered the city. On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. So that's what happened there in Lystra. The first time he goes in Lystra, heals a man that had been lame in his feet, tells a bunch of people about Jesus. They stone him, drag him out. I can just imagine the disciples getting around him. And to me, I go back to a Monty Python movie scene. And they're like, was he dead? I don't know. Is he dead? I'm not dead yet. And then... Or, or if you, that's not your cup of tea, you can go to the Princess Bride. And you know when Wesley is sitting there and they go in there with the magician and his wife and they make the little, the little chocolate-covered candy treat and they pop in his mouth and all of a sudden his eyes come awake? Do you all ever watch Princess Bride? That is like the required movie list if you're going to join this church. It's got to be on there, okay? So that's what I think of. So all the disciples are gathered around him and all of a sudden Paul opens his eyes, gets up, dusts himself off and they're like, what are you going to do now? I'm going back into town. (laughs) Wouldn't have been me. I would have like moved on. Anyways, so, so they left and they went down to Derby. Now, second missionary journey. Why do we know it's a second missionary journey? Well, you go to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, your headings may be a little bit different, but Acts 16 and verse 1, it says, Timothy joins Paul and Silas. Well, you know it can't be the first missionary journey because Silas wasn't there the first missionary journey. So, now this is the second missionary journey. Verse 1, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So, the first time Paul came into town, he healed the man, got beat up and stoned for it, and then the second missionary journey comes in, and he sees the fruit of his efforts. And there's Timothy. He sees promise, he sees potential in Timothy, recruits Timothy to help him in the missionary journeys, and that is where the story really begins. So that is where Timothy comes into the picture, because Timothy was a young man living in Lystra, Lystra, living there with his mother. A guy by the name of Paul showed up, healed the man, he watched him get stoned, then he left for a period of time, and now he comes back talking about Jesus again. And so really, it's because of Paul's willingness to be used and even his willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ that produces a fruit later on that then has an impact not only in Paul's life but in our lives today. So Acts 16 is where we're introduced to Timothy and then if you keep scrolling to your right you see there in Acts chapter 17 that now Timothy is with Paul and he is with Silas and it says in Acts chapter 17 and verse 14 that remember um, when Paul and Silas they were in Thessalonica they get run out of Thessalonica they go to Berea they get run out of Berea and then what does it say in verse 14 and the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea but Silas and Timothy remained there. So I'm just going to point out to you these where Timothy keeps showing up in the narrative of the Acts of the Apostles. Then you go to chapter 18. Chapter 18 and verse 5. Paul is down in Corinth. And he is meeting Priscilla and Aquila and Priscilla. But in 18 and verse 5 it says when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. So we're getting the impression that you have Silas that is helping Paul on his 
his missionary journeys, but as Paul was moving from town to town, there were people, mainly Silas and Timothy, that were with Paul that Paul would then send. Hey, stay here. Come later. I'm here. Go check on them. He was using him for the sake of ministry. Uh, Acts chapter 19 and verse 22. About that. No, no, no. And having sent in Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while talking about Paul. So he's got Timothy. Sometimes Timothy's with him. Sometimes Timothy is staying behind to help take care of ministry, take care of, take care of needs. Or sometimes he is sending Timothy ahead of him to go talk to somebody or to go some, take care of some kind of work. You see his name again show up there in Acts 20 and verse 4. As being someone that is being used by Paul for the sake of ministry. Then, fast forward all the way to first, the letter of 1 Corinthians. So in Romans 16 and verse 1, Paul talks about Timothy and making his final remarks and his regards. And then if you remember when we were in 1 and 2 Corinthians, we noted that the letter of 1 Corinthians, that we have the book in our Bible known as 1 Corinthians, is actually the second letter that Paul wrote to the church. 2 Corinthians, as we have in our Bibles, is actually the fourth letter that Paul had written to the church. So as Paul is obviously not in Corinth, because he's writing to the church in Corinth, he says, like places like 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, he mentions, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. So he says, hey, I'm sending Timothy to check on you, to see how you're doing, etc., etc. You see the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Verse, uh, verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. You also see him mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul will introduce a letter and either he will say, I, Paul, with my servants Silas and Timothy, or Sylvanus and Timothy, or sometimes you'll see, whether it's Philippians or Colossians, he'll just say, hey, it's me and Timothy. So Timothy became a very vital role in the ministry that Paul was engaged in. Four, or sorry, three times in 1 Thessalonians and once in 2 Thessalonians, Paul mentions about the work of Timothy and the help of Timothy in ministry. So when we're writing to Timothy, and that's where we're at, you can make your way there to 1 Timothy chapter 1. So when we're writing to Timothy, he's not writing to somebody that he just met online or he just briefly met and networked with at a conference. He's not writing to somebody he's heard about. This is somebody that he did life with. This is somebody that he spent a large amount of his time living with. Now... Sometimes you'll hear Bible scholars, Bible teachers, they'll talk about the prison epistles, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Then they will talk about the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. They have a pastoral theme to them as Paul is writing to both Timothy and Titus. He's writing about pastoral matters and how to better lead and to serve the church. But also when you get to 1, 2 Timothy and Titus, you see letters that are written from an author to a identified person. 1 Corinthians is written to the entire church of Corinth. 1 Timothy is written, and the audience or the, the subject that he's writing to is Timothy. What other books in the New Testament do we know that are written to individuals? There's five of them. Philemon. Okay. Okay. Well, close. He's writing to a region, but he's not writing to a person. It's Peter that's writing to the church there in what is modern day Turkey. So you have you have First and Second Timothy. You have Titus. You have Philemon, which is back there um, after First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. Um, so you got that, and then you got Luke, and there's one more. Jude. What? Is it Jude? No, ma'am. It's Acts. Remember at the very beginning of Acts? Luke is making his record and he is saying, I have, as I had written to you in the previous record, O Theophilus, I want to write, continuing to tell you about the Acts of the Apostles. Remember that? 
So if just you know, Luke was writing to Theophilus. Now it's a gospel account, and we have that, and it benefits everybody in the church. But at the same time, Acts was just the sequel. It was just part two to what Luke was writing to Theophilus. So. Just a little history trivia you might hold back in, the mind, back in your mind. So Paul is writing Timothy. Timothy was a man that uh, was brought up under the ministry of Paul, was greatly used by Paul, was greatly used in the ministry of Paul. And now Paul is writing to him to encourage him, to tell him how to best pastor. Now, does anybody know the setting of 1 Timothy? You'll see it in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. You want me to take? I'll give you a cheat. What? Ephesus. Ephesus. Okay. So, what does it say about Ephesus? Okay, that's right. So, Timothy is now pastoring the church at Ephesus. Now, we've already looked at the book of Ephesians. Ephesians was written to the church that is there at. Ephesus. And if you remember as we went through the book of Acts, I know this has been several weeks ago, but when we went through the book of Acts, we had talked about how Paul went to Ephesus. He was there for over two years. Um, it was at Ephesus, what is this, Acts 19, I think, where the riot breaks out and Paul has to leave. And I think it's later on in Acts chapter 20, where he's making his way back down Jerusalem for the final time and he meets the Ephesian elders. And so he had spent a large amount of time there at the church at Ephesus. So now that Paul is no longer there, who does he send to pastor the church? Well, he sends Timothy. And he says, Timothy, I want you to go and you're going to pastor the church there at Ephesus. Does anybody remember anything significant about the city of Ephesus? They had a riot. <laughs> yeah, they had a riot. Okay. Timothy was real Okay. But about the city itself. So the city was a port city, and it was right on the Aegean Sea. The Aegean Sea is a body of water that's connected into the north of the Mediterranean. So if you were to look at a modern day map, you would have Greece. I'm trying to do this for you. You'd have Greece here, and you'd have Turkey here, and the Aegean Sea would be in between. So Ephesus was a port city, what is on the west side of modern day Turkey. Not only was it a port city, but it was a very... um, well-to-do city, a very prosperous city. And it was also, if you remember back to Acts 19, it was a city that had a great temple. Either your, Some of your Bibles may say Artemis, some of your Bibles may say Diana, depending on how they translate it. But it had a ginormous temple, a pagan temple. Remember Acts 19, the reason the riot started was, is because all these people were showing up because of all the trade that came in. They were right there on a big trade route over land. They were in a big trade port city, strangers, travelers, sojourners would come into town they would get their little trinkets and their little idols and they would spend a lot of money and then when people call telling people about Jesus they're like, I don't need these idols anymore I have the one true God and so they're not buying the idols then you have the silversmiths, the coppersmiths and all the people, the artisans that make the idols they start losing money, they're the ones that start the riot why do I tell you this? Because in Ephesus there is a lot of religion very little spirituality. Does that make sense? So there's a lot of people that are going around with beliefs, ideas, preconceptions, but there were a hard time trying to show people who Jesus was because everybody thought they had it figured out on their own way. We have a lot of that stuff going on today. A lot of people that think, you know what, I don't need that Jesus stuff. I've got my own path. I've got my own way. I've got my own thing figured out. I've got my own personal relationship with God. I've got, I know what I believe in my heart and that's all that matters what I believe in my heart. Except for the Bible. Because the Bible says your heart is wicked. The Bible says your heart, apart from Christ, only desires sin. And that is why we need Jesus. That's why we need to be forgiven of our sins. So Ephesus is a tough town to pastor. 
So Paul is writing to Timothy to encourage Timothy on how to pastor the church at Ephesus. So you're in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. That's why Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. He knows he has a young man. He knows Timothy well. And he also knows that it could be possible that Timothy might get to Ephesus and go, You know what? This isn't what I thought it was going to be. I'm going to go find a little bit easier place to hang out. I'm going to go buy, I'm going to go, I'm going to start putting my resumes out there and I'm going to start finding an easier place to serve as a pastor. So that's what this letter is about, is Paul is writing to Timothy how to pastor. So you know who's writing it? Writing it. You know who he's writing it to. Uh, most people think it was written somewhere around 62, 64 AD. Paul is most likely in Rome. Either he is imprisoned um, or in some status there um, in Rome. And so he's writing to encourage Timothy. Now, what is he doing? It's a pastoral epistle, so he's writing to Timothy how to pastor. So you might be here tonight and you're like, why do I care about... First Timothy, if it's all about an older pastor writing to a younger pastor. Because what he's doing is he's telling a younger pastor how he should faithfully pastor the people of God. Why do I think that matters to us here tonight? Because it matters not just to me, but it matters to you that the people that are serving you in pastoral leadership are faithfully serving according to the Word of God. And how are you going to know if they're being faithful and serving according to the Word of God if you don't know how they're supposed to be serving? That's right. So it's good to not only for the leadership, servant leadership, to know how they're supposed to serve, but it's also good for the church to know how their servant leadership is supposed to serve. A couple of years ago, um, whenever I was uh, first starting to visit with the search committee of this church, I was given this. I know you can't read it. I'm just going to tell you. It is the job description of the prospective pastor. Um, Two pages. And it lined out, hey, these are the duties and expectations of what we think, um, what we're looking for in a pastor. So anybody that they're looking at, hey, if you're thinking about coming and serving at this church, this is what we're going to expect of you. In addition to that, I received, I don't know if some of you weren't here, but uh, there is a pastor search congregational survey. Anybody here remember that? So you go through and you fill out whether I like him to be tall or short, whether I like to be handsome or ugly, whether I like him to be green or or blue, um, whether I like to be married or single, whether I like for him to have education or not. I mean, there's a whole thing. And so what they did was they took all of the congregational survey of what they're looking for in a pastor and they compiled it. And so what I've got here is not everybody's form. It's just, hey, we had X amount of votes for this category, X amount of votes for that category. Kind of give me an idea of the people in the church, what they are looking for in a pastor. Okay? All of these, both of these are great and they're good. But let me tell you a little secret. Before coming to this, when I think about what the job description of a pastor should be, I go to the book of 1 Timothy. Because to me, the book of 1 Timothy supersedes other job descriptions are out there. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the other job descriptions out there. But I think 1 Timothy gives us a phenomenal job description of what a pastor should do and a phenomenal picture for what a church should expect out of their pastor. How many chapters are there in Timothy? Six. Six. Okay. So what I'm going to do in uh, the next hour and a half is we're going to look at six different qualities that we see out of 1 Timothy. Six qualities I want to, and I know you can, uh, yeah, six. So I know that you can probably find more or you might even find less, but I just want to show you six qualities that Paul puts in front of Timothy and says this is what it means to be a faithful pastor. Because I want you to know that I mean, and I believe this, I'm not just saying this, I actually believe this, this is, this is my job description. At the same time, I want you all to know that this is what the church should expect out of their pastoral leadership. Whether it's me, whether it's the next guy down the street, who knows? As the future goes, or if you have loved ones, and they're in a different faith family, they're in a different congregation someplace, and they're in the process of looking for a pastor, or whatever the case may be, you can turn to them and say, hey, you know what? This is what God expects out of the people that lead the church. And this is what the church should expect out of the people that lead the church. Make sense? Okay, so 1 Timothy chapter 1, let's look at these six, and I'm going <laughs> to... Okay, so we got six... Six principles. 
The first one, and I just put these down. You won't see this directly out of the text. This is just the way that I write it in my, in my little brain. Is The first principle is to promote and guard truth. Where do I get that from? 1 Timothy 1 verse 3. Paul writes, he says... As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myth and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then listen to verse 6. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident confident assertions. What's he saying? He's saying, Timothy, I want you to promote the truth, but more importantly, I want you to guard the truth. Because Timothy, you're in a setting in Ephesus, so there's all these other ideas, all these competing philosophies out there. There's all these uh, other mystical, humanistic ideas, and there will be people that will go, well, I feel this, or I think that, or I believe this, or my cousin, sister, twice removed on my father's side, he does this, and so they find themselves distracted and chasing off in a lot of different directions. That's why he says, they're swerving from these, having wandered away into vain discussion. Has anybody ever heard, has anybody heard this whole ice cube hack? Anybody seen any ads on social media about this ice cube hack? Supposedly there's this trick where they take ice cubes, and some way that you consume the ice cubes, all of a sudden you start losing weight. I've I've got people that I'm related to that just sit there and eat ice and eat ice. I tell you, it doesn't work. But the idea is, the idea... (laughs) I already said it out loud, didn't I? Okay, so the idea is, they they show you this little ad and it says, hey, you know what, I put this video up, it keeps getting taken down, there's this ice cube channel or ice cube hack or whatever. Click the link to find out more. I did not click. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. I did not click, but I did increase my ice intake. So the idea was, though, the idea was, I mean, it's click this link, and then all of a sudden it takes you down the rabbit hole of trying to explain to you why a cup and just straight ice will help you lose 20 pounds in four days. And that takes you down the rabbit hole. And what would I call that based upon a biblical principle? A vain discussion. Some new idea, some new little trick, something that has been prepackaged, repackaged, repromoted, and what, in a spiritual sense, Paul says, Timothy, you're going to have all of these things swirling around you, and as the pastor, I want you to know that there's going to be a lot of distractions bombarding the people that you are serving. And I want you to understand that they're going to be pulled in a lot of different directions. They're going to have a lot of different ideas, and they're going to have a lot of voices coming at them saying, well, what do you think about this way of thinking? What do you think about this idea about God? And what do you think about this emotion, this feeling, and all these things. And he says, guard the truth. Verse 7, they're desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. He is saying that there are people, and they might be well-meaning, but they're swerving. They're serving from the truth. And Timothy, guard the truth. The truth is still under attack even in 2023. Is continually under attack in 2023. And Satan uses different tactics and he uses different methodologies and he uses uh, different approaches, but he's always coming in there trying to undermine the truth. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember, you have the garden and there's Adam and Eve in the garden. And God had told Adam, do not eat the fruit. And then here comes Satan on the snake that can walk at that point, and here comes Satan, disguised as a serpent, and what does he say to Eve? Anybody remember? Well, he gets to that, but yes, did God act? 
actually say. And your translations may word that a little differently, but in my translation that I use, did God actually say? With four words, he undermined the word of God. And what happened was, is he twisted it. He just twisted it ever so slightly. And the next thing you know, Eve is eating, then Adam eats, and then the whole thing goes to pot. Did God actually say? Four words undermine the Word of God. That same trick is being used by Satan today. Did God actually say? Huh? Uh, you got me thinking. Uh, I'm moving on. Huh? Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. No, just did God actually say? But he's still trying to subvert. Did God actually say that? I, I, I go round and round with my children the house. Because my children will say something erroneous. Wrong. Well, it says in the Bible. Where does it say in the Bible? <clears throat> I'm just telling you it says in the Bible. Well, then you ought to be able to show me where it says in the Bible since you know it says it in the Bible. Google. Google? Well, that's fine. As long as you can show me it says it in the Bible. Google will tell you where it says oh, well, I, Yeah, but the problem is a lot, we have a lot of people running around that saying, well, the Bible says this and the Bible says this and they can't tell you where it says it. Like the love of money and the root of all evil. We've got to be careful. So what, is, what, is Tim, what does Paul say to Timothy? Guard the truth. The truth is always under attack. Chapter 2. He gives them this second principle. Verse 1. Chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for... Who? All people. So what does Paul tell Timothy to do? He says, I want you to pray for the people. Who does he have him pray for? All people. And then he goes on to define it. Verse 2, for kings and all who are high in positions. When I served in Zanos, before I came up here, um, I made this statement on a Sunday morning. And I don't know where it was at in context, but I made this statement on a Sunday morning that we should be praying for President Donald Trump. There was a man that was in the congregation, a visitor, hated Donald Trump. The very thought that I would say you need, that I encouraged people to pray for Donald Trump was just crazy. He went out and he got on Google and he put a review up of the church. Very negative and very just slanderous about the church. I don't pay attention to the reviews on Google. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. But then I had some other people in the church that have come up and they go, did you see that this terrible review on Google? And I was like, who cares? And they said, well, a lot of people care about what Mr. Google says. And so I go to the individual and I was like, um, explain to me, you know, did we offend you? Did we bother you? Well, you said from the pulpit, you told us that we should pray for the president. And I said, uh-huh. Well, I don't think we should. Wow. Okay. Well, you mean to tell you why I said we should? Yes. I said, because the Bible tells us to. Oh, he did not like that. He was not impressed. I took him. It also talks about it in Romans, how we should be praying for our leaders that God has put over us. This is Romans 13. But right here in 1 Timothy 2, what does he say? He says, Timothy, I want you to pray for everyone. I want you to pray for the saved. I want you to pray for the lost. I want you to pray for the ones you like. I want, to, I want you to pray for the ones you don't like. We as a responsibility, as people, have a responsibility to pray for President Joe Biden. We have the responsibility to pray for Vice President Kamala Harris. We have the responsibility to pray for Miss whatever her title is right now, Nancy Pelosi. Okay? We don't have to agree with their attitudes, but we do have an opportunity to pray for them. So the second principle that Paul tells Timothy is, I want you to pray and intercede for all people. There's a priority that God expects, Paul expected, and that the church should expect for its spiritual leadership to pray. To pray for the people. Is there something supernatural about the preacher's prayers? Not any more than anybody else's prayers. Not any more. I mean, there's nothing that... It's not like I've got some different level of clearance. I mean... It's not like you've got the black phones on your desk and I've got the red phone on mine. I mean, I, there's, nothing, there's nothing special. Okay? There's nothing special about my prayers. Every single one of us have the same, have the same opportunity to go straight to the ears of... Well, he doesn't have ears, but straight to the, the ears of God. The gate... I mean, we we all have the same opportunity. But what does he say? He says, Timothy, 
pray for the people. Why do we pray? We talked about it last Sunday night. We're going to talk about it again this Sunday night. Why do we pray? Okay. Because God tells us to, right? And it's amazing what God can do in our hearts when we orientate our hearts to His. And there is more... I would... I would go out on a limb and make a claim that there is more that God can do with your heart when you submit to Him in prayer than He can do with beating you over the head with praise and worship music, beating you over the head with preaching. When you come to God in prayer, that prayer has more effect on you than you realize. Because you're coming to God, submitting yourself to Him. Not only does God expect the pastor to pray, the church should expect the pastor to pray. And the pastor should know that one of his job descriptions is to pray. Not for the people that he likes. Not for the people that are easy. Not for the people that he wants to pray for. To pray for everybody. We're supposed to. But it's a challenge. But it's... it's. Uh, you, if you take the poison and expect, and you are uh, waiting for the other person to die, that you're supposed to forgive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we should be praying. And I see it as one of the job descriptions of the pastor is he's to pray. He's to guard the truth. He's to pray. The third one in chapter 3, and we'll move through this one rather quickly, but he's to identify godly leadership. Now, when you get to chapter 3 and you start in verse 1 and you go down through verse 7, um, he is talking about the qualifications. He's talking about how do you identify, um, some of your Bibles may say a pastor, some of your Bibles may say an elder, some, type, some of your Bibles may say bishop, some of your Bibles may say overseer. There's two primary um, offices that God has given to the church. You have the office of the pastor and the office of the deacon, spiritually speaking. Okay, so And you will see some different Greek words that are used synonymously. So if you see bishop, if you see overseer, if you see elder, if you see pastor, um, they have a different usage, but they can all be used synonymously to talk about the spiritual leadership of the church. So in verse 1 down through verse 7, he says this is how you identify the people that are qualified according to the standards of God to serve me. He's not saying, Timothy, these are my standards, or Timothy, these are the, you should uh, go after a headhunter and you should take a survey of what the standards are of the people. Timothy, I want you to understand, these are God's standards for who is going to stand before the people and say, thus saith the Lord. So he says, one of your responsibilities is to identify godly leadership in the way of pastoral leadership. And then you get down to verse 8, down through verse 13, and he talks about the second office of the deacons. So you have, if you go back to Acts chapter 6, you see where the, the disciples, the apostles, the spiritual leaders, they were praying and teaching the word. Those are the two aspects of their ministry. And then the deacons came along and they were more of the hands. They were doing the, the, the work, the tangible work, the labor of ministry. But both of those are offices. And so Paul says, Timothy, identify godly leadership. That's a job description. Because people will come, people will go, changes, uh, things change and things ebb and flow when it comes to the needs of the ministry. And it's important to say, I'm not going to look at a person and look at their education. I'm not going to look at a person and look at their bank account. I'm not going to look at a person and say, well, how many people like them? Or even how long they have been a member of a XYZ church. Personally, the things I'm going to look for, do they love Jesus? Do they love their spouse? Do they love their families? And do they love the church? Those are the first four things that I look at. I'm not worried about education. I'm not concerned about your resume. I'm not concerned about your last name. I'm not concerned about whether we're buddies or not. I'm concerned. Do you love the Lord? Do you love your spouse? Do you love your family? Do you love the church? But sometimes in our humanity, we start looking at the wrong qualifications. 
and we start evaluating people through the eyes of man instead of through the heart of God. So he says, <laughs> Where are you going, young man? Okay, go ahead, young man. So he says, when it comes to being a pastor, understand that part of the job description of a pastor is picking out godly leadership. And also part of the pastor is showing the people what godly leadership looks like. And all of this comes around. And so he says, this is the third job description, is to identify godly leadership. Then you get to chapter 4. And this is where it gets a little closer to the toes. He says, practice personal holiness. Start there in verse uh, 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this end, we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. He says, scroll down there to verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. He emphasizes and he prioritizes the need for personal holiness in the life of the pastor. If you ever find my phone sitting around and uh, it's darkened off like that and you touch the front of it, The background on this phone was a saying that I read, and I can't remember who. I read it somewhere, and I stole it. And it says, their greatest need is my personal holiness. And when I first read that, I thought, how arrogant is that? Oh, well, they need my holiness. But then I started thinking, the greatest thing I can do for Jaylene is to be as holy as, and as close to the representation of Christ that I can be. The greatest thing I can do for my children at my home is to be as holy as I can be and as close to the most accurate representation of Christ that I can be. The greatest, the greatest thing that I can do for the people that I have an opportunity to serve is to be as holy and as Christ-like as possible. You may say, well, that sounds you know, a little braggadocious. I'm not saying I'm doing it. I'm just saying that if you start thinking about, hey, this is what I should do. Okay, do, are we called to be holy? Yes, First Peter 3. Be holy. As I am holy, you also shall be holy. But it's this. That's right. That's right. It goes both ways. But the idea that he's saying, you know what, Timothy, your personal holiness matters. Because it's not just your personal holiness on a Sunday. <laughs> no. I mean, it's just like your physical physique, okay? You can eat salads all day on Saturday. But if you don't eat like that on Monday through Saturday, it's going to show. It's going to show, okay? Right? 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 I mean, I don't know if you've ever been on some of those dinners, you know, like whether it's a business dinner, whether it's a family outing, or you get out in front of public, and you always have that individual, and the individual isn't used to eating salads, but they're sitting there eating a salad, and you're like, oh, look at them, they're all being healthy because they're eating a salad. No, they're putting on a show because people are watching. Are you paid for them? <laughs> Same way with holiness. You think you're going to come in on Sunday. I think I can come in on Sunday, and I can look the part, I can act the part, but I'm not living like it the rest of the week. It's going to show on Sunday. Holiness matters. The church should expect their leadership to pursue after holiness. Not perfection, but pursue after holiness. So another job description that Paul tells Timothy is his personal holiness. Chapter 5. Chapter 5. He gives the fifth job description there. Uh, Verse 21. I'm going to rip it out of the middle of the context. You can go back and read before and after you like to, but for the sake of time, let's just let's just zoom in, zoom in on verse 21. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and all and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. If you go back and you look at the context before and after, he is telling Timothy, he's saying, Timothy, you have a responsibility to lead the family of God, to lead the body of Christ. You have a responsibility to lead the people that God has put 
in front of you. That's why he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the lit angels, I charge you to keep these rules. What are the rules? The rules are how to lead the church faithfully. We have a dearth, a vacuum of male leadership in our society. Vacuum, it's absence of. We have a shortage of male leadership. I use the word dearth, but that's... But we have an absence of male leadership. You start looking around and seeing some of these 17, 18, 19-year-old young ladies that are coming of age, and then you start looking around and looking at the potential males. They can play video games. And they can practice immaturity. But very few of them have any idea what it means to be a man or to provide for a home. And we've got a great, great shortage of males ready to provide for homes. In the same way, we have a great shortage of leaders in the church. People that are willing to serve and people that are willing to spiritually lead, not for the recognition, not for the paycheck, and not for what they get out of it, but because they have a call of God upon their lives. I have a great, a great absence of that. Now there's two sided to the coin, okay? We've got to have people that are willing to lead and we have to have people that are willing to be led. But we have a great absence of that. So what does Paul tell Timothy? He tells Timothy, I want you to lead the flock. Sometimes leading is easy. Sometimes leading is difficult. Sometimes people agree. Sometimes people don't agree. Sometimes people like you. Sometimes people don't like you. But it's one of those things that when you know that you're following God and you're doing what God told you to do, it gives you a confidence to keep going the course. And when you make a mistake, put your hand up. And you take responsibility and you learn and you keep pursuing God. He says, lead the flock. Last one, last one, last one, last one. I promise you, we're done. Chapter 6. Chapter 6, there's the last one. Teach what is true. First, job description was to guard the truth. Second, was to pray and intercede. Third, was to identify godly leadership. Fourth, was to practice personal holiness. Fifth, was to lead the flock. Number six, teach what is true. Where do I get that from, Spence? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Hey, let's see here, let's see here. Verse, the last part of verse 2. It may be in the next heading down below there. He says, teach and urge these things. And then in verse 3, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness he has puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for the controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagine that godliness is a means of gain but godliness with contentment is great gain For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession, and the presence of many witnesses. Verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Paul is writing to Timothy and says, Timothy... Teach what is true. Don't teach what is popular. Don't teach what is acceptable. Don't teach what is trendy. Don't teach what tickles people's ears. Teach what is true. Now, how are you going to know what is true? You've got to know what God's Word says. And if you're not willing to stand on this, and you're not willing to know this, and you're not willing to submit to this, and you're not willing to live according to this, you're not living true. So he says, Timothy, I know that it's going to be easy to take the easy route. 
there are some things that are true. Are you going to stand with what is true? So Paul, probably find more here if you wanted to, as he's writing Timothy, he says, I know that the situation you're in is difficult. I know that the church is a challenge. I know that there's people that like you. I know there's people that don't like you. I know that you have a lot of obstacles in front of you. But Timothy, I want you to remind you what God expects out of you. And I think it is relevant to us tonight because if these, since this is the inspired and errant and fallible word of God, Holy Spirit inspired Paul when he wrote it, so this is the word of God. So if these are the priorities of God, then these should be the priorities of the pastor. And they also means these should be the priorities of the church. So whether it's me or whether it's you, we know this is the job description of the people. Either we lead or that we follow. And so I hope that when you are thinking about um, praying, praying for those in leadership, praying for those that serve sacrificially, I hope that you pray that, hey, God, that they maintain their priorities in front of you. And there may come times, I hope, I pray that it never does, but there may come times that you might disagree with me. can't remember time. Well, I, that's a lie. So, Jaylene can tell you what it looks like, but I'm just going to tell you, I mean, there may come a time somewhere down the road that you may say, well, I don't think Spencer's right. I don't like what Spencer's doing. I don't think, I don't agree with what, what's going on right now. I would ask you, before you jump to conclusions, just say, is he meeting the job description that God has given him? And if so, and there is still controversy, please, come talk to me. Come talk to me. But if we are at odds because I am not fulfilling the job description that God has put in front of me, then the greater concern is not that we're at odds, but I am being unfaithful to God. And it's a danger for me, and it's also a danger for the church when the leadership stops pursuing the things of God. Questions? Thoughts? Pushbacks? Ruminations? Okay. I love you all. Hope uh, be in 2 Timothy next week. Lord willing. So we'll see a little different angle on what he talks about as he's writing the, the sequel there um, to the church. But I hope that this is not only helpful as you think about, okay, this is what we should be looking for. And also you think about this is what we have an opportunity as a church to... Uh, Support, lift up, and uh, look forward from the people that God has put in front of us. So, thank you for being here tonight. Um, 9.45 Sunday school on Sunday. 10.45 Sunday morning service. Hope you'll come back and be a part of that. Just so good to see so many people here um, this evening. So, Brother Lee, would you close us in order of prayer? And we'll go home.